Defendants within the criminal justice system are separated into two separate yet unequal categories. Caucasians and people that have financial resources to afford adequate representation and disadvantaged people of color who don't. These are their stories. That day when I was convicted and sentenced to death, I really didn't even know how to respond. Remember, I had been in jail two and a half years believing that if I just got to trial and the truth came out, that I would be exonerated, I can go home. Well, that's not what happened because I was convicted and then I was sentenced to death. I was so emotionally drained. Like I told you, the judge thought I didn't understand. The DA thought I didn't understand what had just happened. I told you the judge asked for my lawyer to bring me up to the bench so that he could explain it to me, what had just happened. The state had just sentenced me to death for a crime I knew absolutely nothing about. And now, this is on a Friday, and I'm whisked off in handcuffs in front of my family back into the jail. I didn't go straight to death, bro, because this was the weekend. So I had to stay in jail that Friday to the Monday, right? But being that I was now convicted, I was removed from general population in the jail and placed in an isolated cell by myself because I am now a convicted death row inmate. And I cannot be in general population with any other inmates that have a different charge than mine. I have the ultimate charge. I, I've been sentenced to death. And I just still cannot wrap my mind around what happened. For two and a half years, I just wanted to get to trial to tell the truth. And I was banking on the system working because I've been told we have the greatest system in the world. So I just wanted the truth to come out and I wanted justice to prevail and I wanted to go home. All those things that I wanted <laughs> didn't happen because that's not the way our system is designed to work. Our system is designed to convict. That's it. It is not designed to escapate. It is designed to convict. And they spend a lot of money to get you into those courtrooms so that they can convict you. And now here it is. I am an innocent man sentenced to death and I'm on my way to death row. So when they get me back in the cell and they put me in this isolated cell, I just lay on the bunk and I don't even know what to think. All I know is I want to call my mom. I want to know how my mom and them doing because after the trial, they had to drive back to Brenham, Texas, which is about an hour, hour and a half away from where we were having the trial, which was Angleton, Texas. So I'm concerned about my mom after I've been convicted and I need to talk to her. About two hours later, an officer comes back into the jail and I asked the officer if I can use the phone because now that I'm in an isolated cell, all the phones are on the outside of the cell and I have to have a guard come and open up my cell 
so that I can use the phone. Like anyone else that's in this jail cell or cage, they are allowed to walk outside the bars and they have access to the phones all day. I had that same access until they just wrongfully convicted me. And now a couple of hours have gone by, I've laid in this bunk, not knowing what to think. I just want to talk to my mom. Finally, the officer came and he allowed me to use the phone to call my mom. I get on the phone and she comes on and she asks me, how you doing? And I just tell her, I'm good. I just need to know how you doing. And we just go back and forth. We are in total disbelief. We cannot believe that the justice system has failed us this way. And now I'm literally, literally fighting for my life. And was, a cousin was at the home with my mom. Her name was Felicia. We grew up together. Felicia was my first cousin. She was my mom's sister child. And she wanted to speak with me on the phone. By the time she got on the phone, I started losing it. When I heard her voice, the only thing I could ask them was, can y'all just please take care of my kids for me? I just want them to please take care of my kids. And then I asked my cousin, why would they do this to me, right? Why would you just wrongfully convict me, sentence me to death? for something I know absolutely nothing about. And the, and, and the funny thing is I know the system. I know the prosecutor knows that I'm innocent. So I don't understand why, why they're doing this to me. But yet I'm in this position that so many non-white, poor African-American men and women have been in. I'm sentenced to death for something I know absolutely nothing about. Now we get, we get to Monday. Monday morning, they cut off all the phones in the jail. No other inmate can use the phone. And no one knows why they cut off all the phones in the jail. Well, 10 minutes later, two officers come to my cell with shackles and handcuffs in their hand, call out my name, ask me to turn around and get on my knees so they can shackle me. I was headed to death row. They came into my cell. I got on my knees. They shackled my legs. I turned around, they shackled my hands. Then they ran a big old chain around my waist and they connected everything from my hands to my feet to that chain that was around my waist. If you ever seen the movie Roots, you can see this vision in your mind. And I was put, walked, escorted outside, put in a patrol car, and headed off to death row. I didn't know what to think. I, I'm still in this, living this out of body experience. Here I am headed to death row, where they say the worst of the worst live for a crime I know absolutely nothing about. And now I have to go and live amongst these bad, bad people. Imagine the fear. 
I mean, these people were put in prison for killing someone. I've never even owned a gun, a shot a gun in my life, or carried a weapon. And now I'm headed to death row where guys have been convicted for killing one, two, three, sometimes families, sometimes many people. And now I have been put in their presence. And I am literally scared. By the time we get to death row, there was a towel with a female officer in it. She was a white female officer, short, fat, about five foot two, weighed about a 170. And she was about 53, 54 years old. She was literally uneducated. But yet, she was a security officer for this prison unit. Well, when the officer that drove me down got out the vehicle, the female officer let down a bucket that was on a rope. He takes his gun and his paperwork, puts it in the bucket, and she pulls the bucket back up. Take a look at his paperwork, and then she yells down to him and tell him that, He's at the wrong unit, that he needed to take me over to the unit that they book you in at, right? Called Go Re Unit. So she let the bucket back down, the officer got his paperwork, got his gun, and then he got back in the vehicle. And we drove about five miles to another prison. This is where they do the intake for all the inmates, but they do a special intake for death row inmates. See, death row inmates get privileged. We get the first of everything. We get, we, we're first in line to, to get taken in. We're first in line to get strip searched. We're first in line to get gassed. We're first in line to get executed. So we have privileges. And now he's taking me over here to the intake. And we get there, two other officers come, escorts me out of the vehicle and into the building. Well, now I'm turned over to the Department of Criminal Justice. Once we get inside the building, they put me into what they call this brass cage where other men were, and I had to strip out, right? I had to take off all my clothes, and then I had to be dehumanized, right? They had to ask me to lift my hands, raise my feet, raise my privates, run my fingers through my hair, turn around, bend over, spread my cheeks, just dehumanize me. All for something I don't know anything about. And after that, I have to go through the process of getting my hair cut, taking a shower, and then getting some, some, some death row clothes, some shower shoes, and then I get a ride back over to the jet, to the prison that said that I had to come over there first. So I get to go back and see the female officer that told us I had to go to the intake building first. So when we get back there, now I'm in a van that has Texas Department of Correction or Texas Department of Criminal Justice on the side. And I'm shackled still, but now I got handcuffs on me with that also has this big square block over it that tightens up the handcuffs until your hands are just practically numb. 
So I become a black man with blue hands, basically. All the way back over to death row. Once we get there, the officer, officers repeated what the first officer did by putting their paperwork and their gun inside this bucket that the officer dropped down. She pulls it back up, checks the paperwork out, hits the button, you hear the door click, the gate click, which means now we're walking inside of the prison that housed death row inmates. At the time, this prison was called the terror unit, right? Uh, it changed over the years because the story goes that the family whose last name was Terrell didn't want their name associated with the death penalty. So they had to remove their name. But another family member who had been in the Texas Department of Criminal Justice for however many years, he was honored to put his name on it and it went from the terror unit to the Polanski unit, okay? So now I'm over at the terror unit initially. And we get there and they take me back inside the building. And once again, I am strip searched. I've had to come out of my clothes, go through the whole routine again. And then I get some different clothes at this other unit. I get a pair of white pants, a white shirt, with two big letters on the back, D-R-O, standing for death row. So after we go through the process of me getting shackled, and, I mean, stripped out and shackled, now they're finna escort me down this long hallway. I just want you to picture this. We enter into the hallway, it's, it's, it's quiet. All you see is metal gates and, and walls with dull green paint on it. Clean, clean floors though, because inmates had to keep the hallway clean. Shining cement floors. And we're walking down this long hallway and there are inmates out in the hallway, but they're population inmates. They're not death row. They're going to the pharmacy. They got a, a little uh, commissary window that the inmates can line up and get their commissary. So they got activity going on in the, in the hallway as two officers escort me down there. Then all of a sudden, one of the officers started yelling at the inmates that was in the hallway. Get against the wall. Turn your head. Don't look at him. See, I was considered to be the next dead man walking. And, and general population inmates couldn't look at me, had to turn away for my own security because <laughs> even inmates have an opinion about the death penalty and death row. So the officers felt like they were protecting me by making these other inmates comply and get against the wall. So we, so he's walking me down this hall and I look up and there's this big old emblem says Texas death row. It's very intimidating, man. It's very intimidating. See death row was at the end of the hallway. Right? It was separated from general population, but you had to walk through general population to get to the end of the hallway and get to death row. But by the time they take me to a particular wing on death row, I had to go in to see the major. So we had to go to the major's office. 
And once we get into the major's office, which is a little old small room, uh, little desk, a lot of criminal justice books, you know, uh, two chairs on one side, a chair on the other side for the major. So when we get there, the major walks in and goes in his desk and pulls out a file that has my name on it. And so as he's talking to me about, you know, where I'm at and some of the rules, he reaches over and he gives me a rule book and he tells me that it's up to me to read the rule books. There are no excuses for not knowing the rules, right? If you break a rule, you get a case. That's just all to it. You can't not say you didn't know what the rule was. So I took the book and he gave me a cell number, which was J, wing J23, 10 cell, right? Which we're gonna be on the third tier. It's three tiers on each part. And they put me now on the third tier. And as we walk back down the hallway and get to J23, I noticed that we have a lot of, lot of like cage wire all over the bars, right? Where, where initially coming down the hallway, I didn't see those cage wire, that cage wire all over the bars. But J23 had all this cage wire, right? And I come, I come to learn later on that the reason why is because this is where they were housing those who were incorrigible, those who didn't want to follow the rules, those that were bad actors, and they were putting me down there. So when I discovered this, I asked an officer, why did they have to put me on J23? I just got here. And the officer told me, man, that's because we didn't have nowhere else to put you. Can you believe that? Death row was full. There was over 530 some men there waiting to get executed when I pulled up. Just imagine that, 530 some men sitting around waiting to be executed by the state of Texas. Now, let me describe these, some of these men to you. Some of these men had been down there since they were 17 years old, and now they're 48, 49. Some of these men were mentally ill, couldn't read, couldn't write, still even, even wetting on themselves in the bed. Some of these men were guilty as hell, but had come up with a rough life some of these men were also innocent. But all of these men faced the same consequence. Everybody was getting executed. Guilty, innocent, mentally ill, you name it, the death penalty was claiming it. In the name of the citizens, of the state, of the city, of the county, that it represented. We were all participating in executing a man's life, whether you wanted to or not. If you lived in the state of Texas, you were executing men who could have been innocent, who were mentally ill, but definitely a lot were guilty. But they were all meeting the same fate because you decided to support this barbaric practice. But let me say this, when I get to death row, I'm afraid, I've heard all the stories, these are bad people, I shouldn't be here, I'm not a criminal, 
I have no business on Texas death row, but here I am walking into J23, the wing that they will put me on. And when we got in, the first thing I heard was a lot of noise. I hear guys screaming at each other, yelling over the run for the officer to bring them a, a, an I-60 so that they can fill out a medical request to bring them some ice because it was hot. Because here, it was uh, in October, but Texas Death Row didn't have no air conditions. It's going to either be hot or cold. No in-between. And so guys were asking for everything. I he, even hear guys gambling over the run on a sports uh that on the sport that was on the television, right? Because we had televisions at that time. So guys was trying to make a life on death row, okay? What I also recognized, the officers that were working on death row, they were literally kids, had just gotten out of high school, okay? And, and what really surprised me is the females that was working down there. I mean, you had w women that was pregnant, that was running a wing, of death row inmates that was 80, 90 men at a time. And they were running it. But then when you listen to the news, you would hear people talk about how, how scary of a place this was, how bad these people were. But what, what the public didn't realize is you had pregnant 18, 19 year old women running death row wings with men up to 80 and 90 at a time. I wonder how you would have felt had you been able to see this that was going on behind the closed doors, the friendships that was being built between inmates and officers, right? The, the, the things that was being shared back there. You know, these things never made it to the papers because they, if they would have, they would have humanized the people that we were talking about killing. I remember when, I, when, I, when, when they walked me up to my, my, my cell, which was three row, 10 cell. We get in there and as soon as I walked by my neighbor, my neighbor kind of whistled at me, right? Everybody locked down in solitaire basically, so you can't really get to no one. But you know, he was, they, everybody get tried, right? So he whistled at me, you know, I walk on in my cell, I, I didn't pay it no mind. But, but when I get in my cell, I realize my cell is filthy. Toilet has feces all over it. Toilet paper all on the cement floor, all on the wall. And the officer said to me, hey, I'll be right back. I'm going to go get you something to clean the cell up with. Five minutes, 10 minutes later, he comes back. He brings me a rag and some scouring powder and that's it. And from that, I took the next two to three hours to clean up that little old cell. There's only about a eight by 10 cell. That's not a lot of space. But about two to three hours later, I was done cleaning it. And <clears throat> by this time, the officer had came and brought me my first meal, because it had become evening. And I never forget, he brought me some chicken and dumplings. I never tasted any chicken and dumplings like this before, but he told me it was chicken and dumplings. Needless to say, two spoons later, I was through. All right, slid it back out of my cell, okay? I didn't want to talk to nobody. I didn't want to be here.
So they had, they had gave me some headphones because headphones, you could take it and plug it into this, 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 this uh, uh, female deal in the wall and you could pick up channels for the TV that was out on the, on the, uh, on the, what they call the run, right? So you had a, a channel, you could, you could put the TV on or you could put the radio on and it was all in the wall. So when I plugged up the, plugged my uh, uh, headphones up, I switched it over to the radio. And for the whole week, the first week I was there, I laid in my bed with my headphones on, with my head under cover, just trying to visualize every minute of the day what I would be doing, where I would be if I was in the free world. I lived my life like that for the first week I was there. I never forget though, one day, a porter, who was a population porter at the time, population inmates were allowed to work around death row inmates. And their job description was they would help the officers pass out trays, food trays for the inmates. Then they would come back and pick up all the food trays. Then they would sweep and mop the runs. And then they would have to take all the dirty clothes that was in the showers from the inmate shower and put them all into a dirty laundry bag and uh, roll the food cart out, roll the dirty laundry out, and they done for the day, okay? But this time, this inmate come up and he say, hey man, uh, a guy on two-row tin cell told me to bring you this bag. And I'm like, what's in it? You know, because, I mean, I just pull up. I don't know no one. He said, I don't know, man. He just told me to give you this bag. And I remember taking the bag, putting my hand in it, and pulling out a book. And this book was by this lady, I can't think of her name, powerful, powerful sister. And she had been part of the Black Panther Party. And I remember the note that he had wrote. He said, hey man, my name is Rudd. If you need anything, I'm down here in two row 10 cell, man. He said, I sent you this book, man, to let you know that struggle continues, man. You're not the first one to come here. You're not going to be the last one. So good luck. And at that point, I sat down and I started reading the book. But when I started reading that book, I don't know what was in that book that was so empowering to me, but it changed my life at that moment. I knew then that I was going to fight to be free or they was going to kill me. But I was not coming down, coming down here to lay down and let's let them take my life. So at that moment, I decided that I'm finna fight the state of Texas for my life. And our next episode, that's what we're gonna pick up on. What I had to go through on death row to get back home. So stay tuned. You've been listening to the Smart Justice Reform Podcast with Anthony Graves. For more information about how you can get involved or support the program, visit anthonybelieves.org. And be sure to subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, YouTube, or whatever streaming media platform you use. I'm Anthony Graves, and I crisscross this globe sharing my story about my injustice. People often come up to me and ask me, what is it that they can do to help? And I tell them there's three things that you can do. Number one, contact your local and state rep. Show up for jury duty when you're summoned. 
And most importantly, vote.